A note on plot. It's a mistake to think of my life as plot, but isn't this what I'm tasked with now, making sense of what happened by telling it as a story? Or rather, making sense of what is happening? When you lose someone you love, you start to look for new ways to understand the world. It's a mistake to visualize the narrative arc I was handed in school, inciting incident, rising action, crisis, climax, falling action, resolution, denouement, and to try to map my life onto it. It's a mistake to lay that shape over my lived experience, like a transparency the teacher would align over a worksheet, projected, so we could watch her write on it. It is a mistake to ask oneself, is this falling action? Is this crisis? Plot is what happened, and what happened is one thing. What the book, the life, is about is another thing entirely. Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time, and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even and now, your host, John King. Welcome, my friends, to episode 608 of the World's Greatest Writing Podcast. On today's show, I interview the poet and memoir writer, Maggie Smith, as well as the novelist, Michael Cunningham. These interviews took place last November at Miami Book Fair. All right, so this is the last weekend before I report back to prison, I mean, report back to the day job. And those of you waiting to find out if I got my screenplay completed in that time? No. I got maybe half of it written. But my New Year's resolution to at least keep looking at my recent work and to try and keep it in my mind, as Tom Waits once sang, you got to keep a diamond in your mind. I am making progress, if not nearly as quickly as I would like. The second installment of my poetry reading series, featuring me plus an opening act, usually as the opening act for some other literary event, will be taking place on Saturday, January 13th, at the Kerouac Project of Orlando, where Jack Kerouac wrote the first draft of the Dharma Bums, and that will be an opening for the book launch event for my friend Tom Lucas's new book, Research for Andy and the Mystery of Grandma's Half-Eaten Pie of Despair, which he and I talked about back on episode 600. Maybe I'll see you there. All right, let's get to the interviews. And now, the interview of the day.
my guest is the poet and now memoirist, Maggie Smith, whose new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, is new and exquisite. It's a book about making sense of a divorce and also a book about making sense of that sense-making. So it's a memoir in flash essay form, sometimes in a way that feels like a chronological (laughs) narrative, but with lots of interruptions in which there's a meta-commentary on the problem of trying to write a memoir in the first place when you need to impose some kind of order Mm. on a life that at best, it has to seem disordered when we look at it. So thank you so much for giving me some time. Oh my gosh, no, thank you. I love everything you just said and wish I had had you available to write (laughs) the copy about the book because it's been in some ways challenging to try to encapsulate it. Well, you did such a a wonderful job with the book. Yeah, I'm good at summarizing. (laughs) Thank you. We're quite a team. This is a subject that's near and dear to me. I love when things don't quite go right. Not necessarily in life, but when there's a a narrative that's too composed. Mm. I don't trust it. Yeah. A narrative that's too composed, I mean, one possibility is we end up with President Trump. And so, okay, but if we tell a story I like, I'm, st- I'm still wary because the apparatus itself can lead to so many bad things. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that meta-commentary? I also think of, I tend to write a paragraph and then throw a question mark somewhere indeterminately in there, but I was thinking of Kafka's diaries where he is trying to process something and he just kept rewriting the same mm. bit, which meant I, I didn't get very far. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but also it was really fascinating. He wanted to get it right. And that forced him in his own journal to try and keep perfecting and keep perfecting. Yeah. And I, I think looking for a form that's going to feel appropriate has to be a, a challenge, especially to the poetic mind where, you know, you're looking for an emotional truth more than a consistent or chronological narrative. That's right. I mean, I think what you're saying here, storytelling is seductive, right? And sometimes Mm -hmm. if the story is told just so, we tend to sort of gloss over bits. Like if every every splinter in a story is kind of sanded down, we're able to kind of skim just over it without really stopping and spending a lot of time. And in writing this book, I think the vignette structure and then even the meta-commentary came to me pretty organically, I think precisely because I'm an outsider to the genre. If my last four books had been essay collections or memoir, I probably would have entered this book with a different frame of mind and maybe come up with a different way of telling this story. But because I'm a poet, I had to approach this book as a poet, which means write small, (laughs) <laughs> consider what is essential, lean on lean on image, lean on metaphor, you know, be thinking about pattern and repetition and all of those things that I do when I'm working on poems. And I think too that that kind of repetition is important because it gets at like you said the sort of psychological truth or the emotional weather of the experience that I'm trying to encapsulate here. So by telling the story neatly, it would have felt like it was going against the grain of the experience. I wanted the book to feel like the experience felt. So if I was ruminating a lot during this time, which I was, that would make sense to have a lot of repetition and kind of cycling back through ideas in this book. 
or if I was going through a lot of grief and waves of grief in this time, which I was, it would make sense for those waves to kind of rise up sometimes and then kind of die down and then rise up again. So the different narrative shapes in the book really do correspond to that emotional weather more than more than any kind of true narrative. Our psychological lives aren't necessarily stories. No. So like this story begins with you making a discovery. Your husband is asleep. You're working on your work at night and then you snoop, which is always the wrong thing to do unless you find... Unless it's right. Unless your <laughs> guess is right, in which case... No, this was information I did need. Yeah. But also that moment of, of shock, even if like a couple of things are happening, like, I can't believe this is happening. And also, this explains a few things. <laughs> right. So that the narrative has actually begun before the narrative began. Yep. Yep. And so we're always experiencing multiple senses of time. Yeah. So by breaking up, I mean, that could have been like two paragraphs. Okay, this is what happened. And then I did this. And then that happened. And by spreading that out, it kind of does reflect the kind of waves of experience. Yeah. Emotional time is different from actual, actual time, isn't it? The way that things feel like they slow way down in tense times or things feel like they're fast forwarding in strange ways. I think... The emotional import of an experience absolutely shapes our sense of of time. I also think, just as a poet, I think of myself more as sort of a an image presenter or experience distiller than a storyteller. And so the idea of having to craft a narrative, and, and frankly, a coherent narrative about a time in my life that felt so chaotic and a time when I had fewer answers than questions was a challenge. And so how do you tell a story if you have giant gaps in your own knowledge of your story? And how do you tell a story that doesn't seem to fit a neat narrative arc? And for me, it was then talk about the fact that it doesn't, you know, instead of pretending like I'm giving the reader everything they want to know, instead of pretending like I've already assimilated all of this and I've processed it and it's fine and I'm writing from, quote, the other side. What if I just bring the reader along and show them my thinking about crafting this? And so that's where the meta narrative comes from. I think with the emotional precision that you're aiming for often doesn't reenact those emotions. It's so I do think that your commentary and, and you're addressing the reader at times helps us figure out the appropriate way we're supposed to tilt at the book. <laughs> Am I supposed to laugh here? Is this funny? Is this hard? Is this sad? Yeah, you know, the direct address, I think, came more from the idea of sharing this story with a readership <laughs> felt a little vulnerable and, and frankly scary. But when I could think about the reader as a human being, it felt more manageable to me. Like I'm sharing this story with another human being. And maybe that human being has been through something like this, or maybe they know someone who's been through something like this, or maybe they've experienced a loss or upheaval or shock or et cetera, et cetera. All of that sort of dear reader, I mean, of course there's a long literary tradition of that, was really my way of humanizing 
this reader author relationship and making it feel more intimate, like as intimate as the story I was about to tell them and trusting them with it. And so it didn't just feel like throwing it out into a big wide universe. Or making a declaration. This was my experience. This is what happened. This is what it was like. This is what it means. Yeah, I wanted to walk another person through it in a way that is like, okay, come, come sit with me. Let me tell you a story. Let me explain this to you. Come along. And so I think that was the impulse. I always think there's something cheeky about addressing the reader, which <laughs> and is I say a little that cheeky. lovingly. Yeah. Simultaneously, if you're trying to be analytical and thoughtful while in the moment, if it starts to feel too precious, well, okay, like, okay, reader. Like, yep. That just invites, okay, like, this might be heady, but the reader's invited, like, really inside the headiness rather than... Yeah, and I think there are things in, in memoir that you couldn't put in a novel because they would be too on the nose. There are parts of this... Right, like, you, you would <laughs> never believe, right? Like, there's no way you wrote this metaphor of a shark and then realized at the end that your wedding dishes are called Great White, there's no way that you couldn't write that in a novel. It would be too on the nose. Your editor would mm-hmm. flag that as precious. But it is true, and it happened. And there are moments in this book where I'm able to say to the reader, like, reader, I know what you're thinking here. <laughs> or like, maybe this seems crazy, but this is how it happened. Or you're probably wondering why, you know, because I'm imagining another person and what their reaction might be with this story. A dear friend of mine who was a Shakespearean actor, Kevin Crawford, we both attended an MLA convention that took place in Washington, D.C. And Shakespearean actor, Shakespearean director, Shakespearean scholar, Mm. he was staying at the Renaissance. And when I pointed that out to him, that was the first time it occurred to him, oh, (laughs) that's my speciality. Right. (laughs) Right. But you couldn't write that. You couldn't put that in a movie because it would be too cute. Yeah. 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 It it would be demanding too much credence from an audience. Agreed. (laughs) So I've written memoir and I've had to like insist, no, no, that happened. That... (laughs) That really, life really is that strange. Sometimes that, I mean, there's a reason we say stranger than fiction. Sometimes these things really do click into place and the universe hands us material and we get to choose what to do with it. Can you talk a little bit about working with the short form? And I imagine a lot of this, there wasn't a plan. Like there wasn't an outline (laughs) going, oh, and then in chapter 50 of... I don't know how many chapters there would be if we're counting. I have no idea. There's no table of contents. We don't even know how many (laughs) chapters there are. There was no outline. Actually, someone asked me once, did you outline this? And I laughed. So I, I love that you were like, this definitely was not planned. No, 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 it was definitely not planned. I mean, I, I structured this book almost exactly the way I build a book of poems, which is I write each piece individually not in relationship necessarily to other pieces. And then I print everything out and shuffle them together in my hands and see what seems to want to follow something else. What two anecdotes or stories or poems or whatever the case may be seem to want to be in close conversation. Which pieces gain power by being in close proximity to one another and which things might gain power by being spread out. So there are these kind of moments of return 
where you're like, oh, oh, I'm seeing that again. I saw that before. So it gives you that sense of almost a signpost, you know, along your along your journey. And in the case of this book, I color coded all of these different strands. So the quotes by other writers, the questions I imagine the reader having, the playing with metaphor, the forward moving plot, for lack of a better word. And so each one got a color. And then I shuffled them together just so blue wouldn't happen for 40 pages and then fall away. (laughs) And we wouldn't have 13 pages of pink and then no pink for 50 pages. So it was about getting the sort of tone and texture and the right kind of spread of all of the different bits so that nothing would fall away for too long. And I imagine in that process of shuffling and printing out and reordering that revealed gaps that probably were filled with newer pieces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, I don't have enough pink, but actually the pink that I could go there is better here. So I need to write another pink, whatever pink was. <laughs> or actually, I think there's too much about this particular time and the balance feels off. I'm going to pull back and extract some things from that. So yeah, it was very much just kind of getting a feel for it and holding it in my hands and kind of weighing it and reading it aloud every time to get all the rhythms to, to make sure that things were flowing together the way I wanted them to, was more a craft project than some sort of (laughs) planned and outlined strategic thing, yeah. Or the outline was just incredibly organic. Yeah, no outline. I don't think I've made an outline for anything since, you know, high school. Well, I tell fiction writers who maybe study under me or listen to me that outlining is going to save your life. Probably. There are pantsers who do just fine. And like, if that works, like, go with God, you have my blessing. Yep. But most people, I think, need an outline. But at the same time, I do have some slight wariness about Okay, just plug in the information. I mean, yeah, you kind of make fun of story structure <laughs> and how partly it tends to remind us of high school. Yeah, Shouldn't we be more sophisticated than whatever we learned in high school? But also, I later learned, all right, Freytag's Pyramid, he was talking about stage. He wasn't talking about yeah. novel. Like, it's just indiscriminately applied to all of these different genres. Yes. And it's like, he would be mystified <laughs> if you were reincarnated or looking down at like, what, what are they doing with my ideas? Yeah. I mean, I think, and there's a place for everything, right? Like some stories do do that. Some stories start out and then they peak and then they settle down. Some stories look like a wave. Well, some stories don't. Some stories look like a corkscrew. Some stories look like a spider web. And so... Like, some stories look like a plateau. <laughs> yeah, some stories look like a flat line. Those are boring. So I think just, and, and part of coming at this project as a poet, I think gave me a wider range of what I thought I could get away with. Because I was like, well, I'm not going to be writing a book that looks like any book I've ever written. And it actually doesn't matter if I'm writing a book that looks like any book anyone else has ever written either. I actually have an opportunity here to just find the organic form for the story I want to tell, and we'll just see what happens. Part of the wariness of storytelling structure has to do with, you're referring to the gaps in your knowledge, like oh, this began because there were giant gaps in my knowledge I didn't know I had, right. and then 
trying to move forward. Okay, and then there are new gaps that you can maybe see better, but the idea that the situation of, of you and your husband psychologically living so far apart from each other without that being acknowledged and life is a hurly-burly business. Like <laughs> that, just trying that to get it through is. every day, unless we are incredibly wealthy and lazy. Um, <laughs> the kind of reflection, I think, that might have at least helped people see each other better. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it would have helped, but the alienation of that, like, oh, I thought I knew this person and I'm not sure this person actually likes me. <laughs> Is so much anymore. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I think that that's a lot of what happens at the end of a relationship is you want to retrace your steps. So when did it stop being what I thought it was? And when did it start becoming this, whatever this is? Or when was it good? And when did it turn? Or who was I before? And who am I now? Those are questions I'll be trying to answer for the rest of my life. Those are not questions I had the answers to going into the writing of this book, nor are they questions that this book tidily answered for me through the writing process. Is it somewhat cathartic to put form to an experience that's difficult? Maybe, yes. Um, is it therapeutic? I wouldn't call it therapeutic. Is it transformational? Maybe, yes, in some ways, because you're taking something out of your body and mind and giving it a form and sharing it with other people and, and creating community and connection in that way. And I think that's what we go to books for. They're lenses through which we better understand our own experience and our own lives and the world that we live in and gives us an inkling of other people's lives. And then we say, oh, we weren't alone. Like other mm -hmm. people have had similar experiences that makes me feel less lonely in my own experience. And there's no way to write through those unanswerable questions neatly without lying. <laughs> well, I think of Kill Bill Volume 2 where... I have not seen it. Is this a recommendation? Maybe. Not exactly. Okay. I don't know your movie tastes are, but <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, it's a revenge story. And it's violent, I've heard. It's very violent, yeah. but this woman, known as the Bride, is enacting revenge against all the people who hurt her, including her former lover, Bill. Is this Uma Thurman? Yes, okay. it's Uma Thurman. Bill questions her, and he gives her a shot of, like, a superdose of sodium pentothal, which I'm pretty sure is just bullshit. But okay. in terms of storytelling, it's so golden because... Is it like truth serum? Is that... Okay, okay. And so he's, like, asking her questions like, you are a cold-blooded killer, and you liked it. And, you know, and she's like, I didn't want that. And he goes, I'm not saying you didn't want a different life. What I'm saying is, you enjoyed being a killer. And that kind of brutal analysis, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. radical honesty. It requires magical thinking, even within the confines of fiction, to get at. Yep. I'm sorry if that was a very long kite to that tail. <laughs> no, I love a kite with a long tail. When we have conflicts with people like that, yeah, seldom do we get a good closure-building conversation where we get, I don't know, the kindness of civil honesty? Yeah, no, I don't think that usually happens. I mean, even if it's, you know, you're fired from your job or a friend ghosts you and, and you don't understand what happened. I think so much, so much of our human pain is coming from a place of not knowing what happened. Why didn't that thing, why didn't that relationship, why didn't that situation work out? 
And rarely is the other party or parties ever available or willing to sort of absolve us or give us all the answers. And so we have to be a little raw and a little unfinished in the world and have some some sort of like wounds that are never fully cauterized as we continue on. And so as I wrote this book, I just thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to tell the whole story because I don't even know the whole story. Mm -hmm. But what can I do in order to tell mine, in order to articulate to the very best of my ability what this has been like and felt like, and to try to come to some conclusions for myself that help me get myself back? reframe things for myself in a way that allow me to feel whole going forward. And that mostly happened. <laughs> yeah. That's about as good as we can hope That's for. That's about as good as we can hope for. It's just a book. It's not meant to solve my problems. It's a book. Well, I also think of, before we got on the mics here, you were praising the phrase, the writing life, which I reluctantly put <laughs> in the name of my podcast to balance out the Drunken Odyssey part, because the Drunken Odyssey doesn't have to be literary at all. Right, true, true. Um, it could just be a lot of fun. Who knows? Uh, used to be a lot more drinking. Yeah. <laughs> in this memoir, what I find remarkable also is as a really accomplished and, and, and very solid and, and, and wonderful poet, this kind of lets us know, okay, and what is a poet's life like? Mm. I don't think this is a how-to. Like, okay, you could build a poetic life out of this. <laughs> Please do not use this book as a how-to. Uh, <laughs> I do remember Toni Morrison telling someone, oh, don't do bad things for the experience. Life will beat you up without Yeah, you, things will happen trying. to you. You'll get your material. Don't you worry. <laughs> but I'm just really interested as someone who I write poetry. I'm not trained to write poetry. I spent a lot of time and effort to get an MFA in fiction writing. Mm. And so I feel like I'm cheating on my fiction when I write poetry. But I think that's also a drive for me to make sure that my poetry is keeping me very interested if yeah, and worth cheating, right? Worth like cheating. Yeah, with. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I feel like there is some poetic insight into what you're writing about, especially since some of the poems cover I mean, you, some of it, there's a little bit of commentary about how the poem got written, but often it's more like, okay, this is what it looks like when I write about it in prose, and then here's the poem. And the poem feels blameless, like, okay, and this is in the abstract realm of poetry, and people aren't named, and it's like we're not showing everyone in the room. And Yeah, you get more cover. And in the memoir, it's like, it's here, just here are some facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's what I think. I didn't know how much I missed the very thin cover of a poetic speaker, <laughs> which is to say when I'm writing a poem, even if it's me, even if it's really me, and it's like my street and my house and my dog and my kids and an actual line of dialogue that one of my children said, something about the fact that it's in couplets or tercets and is framed a certain way gives you that kind of aesthetic distance between that and there's like Maggie, the, the poet slash speaker, and then there's like the me that you would run into at the grocery store, the farmer's market. And in writing this memoir, I really felt the collapse of that, where, yes, there's a narrator, and yes, it's still stylized, so this is not how I talk necessarily all the time in person, but it really did take away even that thin cover that I feel like I have in poems. And that took some getting used to. Do you think you'll write more memoir? 
I do, honestly. I'm working on a collection of essays right now, and I found myself surprisingly energized by writing to the right-hand margin. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a territory I've spent a whole lot of time in. I mean, I really do break most of my poetic lines about halfway across a page. And most of my poems are actually shorter than a page. So I have a fairly small pen within which I work. And I was just saying to someone today, I'm really curious to see how writing prose every day for a year as I worked on this book impacts my poetry from maybe the sentence level or the... Um, just speech rhythms or form. And I don't know yet, it's too early to know, but it'll be interesting when I kind of am able to pull back and see like the next couple of books, knock wood, and see, oh yeah, that actually marked a shift in what she was doing, or maybe actually it won't, who knows. I'm a firm believer in always growing, always learning. All right, I I feel dirty saying always growing, but like (laughs) I, 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 Technically, my mom says I have to teach if I'm going to be at college anymore. But I'm always so eager to just learn new things. And I think You Can Make This Place Beautiful is a wonderful book in which we watch you learn how to build a memoir out of the Mm. materials that you had. And I totally look forward to hopefully happier stories. But no matter what, (laughs) watching you learn what you can do next. Thank you. That's so kind. And now for something that is not the last thing we just did. Michael Cunningham is the author of nine books of fiction, including the novels At Home at the End of the World, The Hours for Which He Won the Pulitzer Prize, and By Nightfall. His latest novel is called Day. For a change, I'll read part of the summary from the book jacket, as this book jacket copy does a fairly good job. In a cozy brownstone in Brooklyn, The veneer of domestic bliss is beginning to crack. Dan and Isabel, husband and wife, are slowly drifting apart, and both, it seems, are a little bit in love with Isabel's younger brother, Robbie. Robbie, wayward soul of the family, who still lives in the attic loft. Robbie, who, trying to get over his most recent boyfriend, is living vicariously through a glamorous avatar online. Robbie, who now has to move out of the house and whose departure threatens to break the family apart. And then there is Nathan, age 10, taking his first uncertain steps towards independence while his sister, Violet, 5, does her best not to notice the growing rift between her parents. And now I transport you and Medias Race to a conference room on site at the bustling Miami Book Fair of 20. 23. I went to NYU um, mm-hmm. for an MFA after getting a PhD. How was that? That was excellent. And in fact, I met you at NYU and you almost made me cry wow. because I, I had this habit, partly it's manners, but after a reading, the author would be normally barricaded behind students with books to assign. Oh, yeah. And normally I would ask the author, oh, can I get you a glass of something? Because otherwise all the other alcoholics in the back of the room are just draining <laughs> right. everything so there'll be nothing to drink. And I'm like, the author deserves at least one glass of something. Something, yeah. I said, can I get you a glass of something? And you're a perfectly kind person. So I think we talked for like 15 minutes, mm. which is a lot mm. yeah. for after a reading. Yeah. And then you went to the house, I think, to attend a reading by Amy Hempel, and you walked through the door and you said, hi, John. And I'm like, I almost cried. (laughs) 
so I was shocked that you remembered my name. Okay. Remembered my face. Yeah, that would, but yeah. you remembered my name. So Michael Cunningham writes the kind of novels that I wouldn't tell my students to write, but that <laughs> I love to read. And I think it's because so few people can do what you do quite mm -hmm. so well, okay. which is to write a lightly plotted story, like very plotted, but submerged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what you explore so magnificently, even when characters are going through heartbreak. Well, yeah. Is just being present in the psyches of these characters and the psyches that are scraping up against each other in relationships and in families and how maybe the only thing worse than that is not having a family. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing worse than being a member of a family <laughs> is not being a member of a family. There you have it. And then people pass away and then there's no longer even yeah. someone there to yeah. be an active conflict with. And yet, and yet, and yet. I think the Faulkner had this great line, the past isn't over. It's not even the past. It's not even the past. <laughs> and those people may be deceased, but they're not necessarily gone. Not long ago, I read By Nightfall, and this was rare for me, Michael, because normally my reading is very podcast-oriented, like who's going to be on the show. And I saw this, and I'm like, it's time for a Michael Cunningham book. And, and I'm just, oh yeah, right, I love this writer. Like, I just fall in love with what he does. And By Nightfall, it's a New York novel that I think represents at least my sense of what it means intellectually to be in New York. And I mean that in mm -hmm, an emotional mm -hmm. way, not in a sterile way. But nevertheless, if I had to report my New York experience, it would be, all right, get to this job, do this, do that. And it's like a, a, a very crowded, crowded city. But yeah, this is yeah. a city from characters well off enough to can afford some quiet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In New York, money buys you quiet. Your new novel, Day, features two youngish families or mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. approaching middle age. 30s, 40s, yeah. I think you really capture well the awful complexity of the creative and intellectual lives people want to live and then the reality of life. And those are always in conflict. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I very much like what you said just a couple minutes ago about how my novels are lightly plotted, which is true. I would say they're very plotted, but it's not the driving, like, yeah. it's not page yes, by page. I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I just wanted to emphasize it because I find that if the story elements are so strong, and I love a highly plotted tale, but it sort of gets in the way of the characters for me. I need to let them work it out for themselves, if you will, which does produce a plot. But, you know, Stephen King and I are not in any competition for the title of Plotmeister. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, but I'm, 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 I'm just glad you mentioned that. Sometimes people will mention, well, there's not much of a plot, but there is. It's just submerged. And sometimes, you know, I teach writing. Oh, yes, and the character of Robbie and his woes about... Oh, I know. Trying to find things to say about there are teachers in the story. Very transactional student work. I'm like, that's someone who has taught. <laughs> Where uh, your yeah. job is to be kind and to try and find something meaningful in this yeah. transaction when yeah. it's not always possible. Yeah, no. um, but I interrupted. No, 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 not at all. Uh, when my uh, often you'll hear from a student, a young writer, that I have trouble with plot, and I usually kind of do this sort of professorial thing with 
my glasses, <laughs> uh, which you just enacted. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I, it's 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 better it's better in its context in a seminar room. I usually say something like, "I think what you're probably telling me is you have trouble with character, because a fully developed character who wants something and is conflicted in some way will always produce a story." Just let the person evolve and emerge, and you'll have a story. And then we do an exercise where we create a character as a group. I write down, starting with age, weight, gender, identity, race, etc., and moving on into favorite shoes, whatever. You know, a lot. We need multiple blackboards for this. <laughs> and then, you know, what does this person want? What does this person fear? What is this person's m most closely held secret, and lo and behold, we get a story every single time. Part of a story very often is, what does the character think the character wants? Right. And what does the character know about what the character wants? Exactly. A long-standing joke about Hamlet is, it takes him forever to do the one thing he knew by the end of the first act. He knew what he was supposed to do. Right. And... I think it's an incorrect reading to say, well, he had to find a nerve. It's like, no, he had to mentally work his way through. First of all, he wanted to kill his uncle before he knew anything was wrong. Right, right, And right, so right, that a ghost right. is telling him, you have to do that thing, yeah. that deep, ugly, horrible <laughs> do crime. do Hamlet, yeah. Do that thing. And it's like, Hamlet would enjoy it too much. And he knows yeah, yeah. that psychologically this is wrong because it feels too right. And it's yeah. fueling the worst parts of him. Yeah, which is yeah. why he has to, okay, wring his hands for two and a half hours. But if you're in for Hamlet, then him figuring it out is worth our time as an audience. Yeah. I think that says as much as I could possibly think of to say about humanity. We are a particular strain of mammals who want things. We're not sure if we do want them. We're not sure... <laughs> Getting what we want is sometimes the when punishment we, we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they are exactly what we had in mind. I think the human story is in some very basic way a story about our, our struggles with our, with our desires, whether they're granted to us or not. When I was a kid, my parents would read me fairy tales. Mm-hmm. The prince kissed the maiden, and she woke up from her slumber, and they went off to his castle together. And when I was very young, before I, I knew better, I would say, go on. <laughs> and my mother or my father would say, no, that's the end. And I said, no, there's more. What happens when they get to the castle? She's, she's always lived with dwarfs in a, in, a, in a cabin. What if she doesn't like the castle? <laughs> and, and my mother would sort of light a cant and say, well, that's the end of the story for now, honey. In Aporia. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah, pause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're writing literary fiction, I think in your case, it's one of those cases where you're going to have to buy in to spending time with these characters. And I can imagine for a lot of readers who are coming to you for the first time, it might be antsy for 20 pages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if something locks in, I get so locked in. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. your characters are intelligent. Even the bad ones are intelligent. Yeah, and yeah, it's true. 
watching them think about the world in, I think there is a lot to be said for slowing down and slowing down with characters. Not every story has to be told that way, and not every writer has to write that way. And writing literary fiction isn't automatically better than writing other genres of fiction. Absolutely. Not, not automatically. Absolutely. Which is why I would hesitate to give your books to the wrong student and say, just go explore what you think, and that's going to be good enough. And, and it mm -hmm, might be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if the writer is devoted enough, they will find their way to do something like what you do that wouldn't be a copy of you. Yeah. yeah but I also yeah. worry that they could spend a lot of time in the wilderness by not being able to lock into what you lock into so well, which is to keep it interesting while we are slowing down. You want heights and, um, well, not depths, but you don't want to go to an opera that's all arias. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I love about teaching, I teach undergraduates, I teach a literature course, short stories. We must read 30 short stories in the course of a year. And I change it from year to year, but not entirely. There's some, some that have been on the syllabus for a while. One class loves the story that the class the next year can't stand. <laughs> and I encourage them to talk about how the story worked or failed mm -hmm. to work for them. But we have to talk about why. And one of the things that I find so helpful and enlivening about these discussions, the ones who loved the Karen Russell story, the ones who hated the Karen Russell story, is the constant reminder. And these are smart kids who read mm -hmm. carefully. The constant reminder that no book is for everybody. I would be suspicious of a book that was loved by everyone. As someone who writes, it's, Three years it's, later, it's that's good to remember be... that. At all the thrift stores. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You want to have a relationship with a reader, but you don't want to try to write the book that no one could possibly dislike. One of my ways of sometimes directing students is, okay, it's not enough to have a story that there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Like, what's interesting about it? Like, what's... Exactly, exactly. I think that maybe just the huge difference in what you do and being present with the characters is it's interesting. Like whenever I hear, there's a Gertrude Stein quote, which says, if you have nothing good to say about someone, come sit next to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love that. And I don't think your characters are mean-spirited, but they sometimes think unforgivable things. And I'm like, I need to hear yeah. unforgivable things. Especially yeah, like, I yeah. and I... I don't need to see it as a brutal drama in which people are destroying or hurting each other. Because even being as kind as we can to each other, we are going to hurt each other. Right, 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 right. Whether we mean to or whether we unconsciously mean to. But in solitude, hearing their thoughts that, okay. Yeah. What does it mean that I'm in love with my wife's brother? Yeah, right. Like, what does that mean? And there's the answer he gives her, which is, Maybe true. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Certainly, I would argue, partly true. Yeah. At the so very many least. things are partly true. So few things are entirely true. Not to get all ambiguous, but. And you I know think what it's I mean. possible to be in love with people and, and not feel possessive, like, oh, and this means that we have to oh, yeah. have this. Like, you could just. I think it's possible to be in love with people without being sexually attracted to them. I think it happens, it, 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 it's all well and good if you are sexually attracted to each other, but I, I just, it comes in so many forms, love and hate. 
And with the driving plot, I don't care how you do it, you must sink the Bismarck. Like those thoughts seldom come up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what do our lives mean to each other doesn't come up in those kind of stories because there's an, a, an assumption, well, the audience will just agree what's important. Like freedom is important or country is important. The philosopher in me is like, okay, like this is just decision trees. And it's like, okay, those assumptions are very problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I don't want to live unfree on purpose, but when it seems, you know, like we have, we must do this for freedom. I'm like, all right, I need a Hamlet soliloquy talking right, about freedom right, right, right. before we do this thing. Right. That's going to at least keep my mind awake. Yeah, yeah. Don't come around here telling me that all you want is freedom and world peace. I mean, we may want that, but but we're creatures I don't think of those two things go together. <laughs> well, there's that too. If I exercise my there freedom, that too. people will yeah, be upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know when I start a novel that I'm going to spend quite a bit of time with these people, two, three, however many years. And I suspect that writers, some writers, myself very much, you want to write about people who are that interesting to you, not necessarily people who are nice, but people mm -hmm. you want to spend a great deal of time getting to know better and better and better. So as you say, I tend to write about people who are intelligent. And I tend to write part of what is interesting to me about us, I mean all all of us homo sapiens, is that some of our best intentions ruin everything. Oh, yes. That aspect of our lives is especially interesting to me. I'm just sort of more interested in, in the person who destroys the house trying to save it than I am in the person who just goes out and destroys the house. I regard so much of my catastrophic life as, okay, what is the best way to crash this car? <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. came out of us. My family, we were on a family trip to Boston from Florida. Mm-hmm driving through New York City somehow, and Whoa. a car just stopped in front of my, my father's vehicle. And we we're in a 1970s sedan, one of those kind of tanks, and he slams on the brakes. But he doesn't just slam on the brakes, but he's like, how do I angle the car uh -huh. to minimize? And like, our bumper just tapped uh -huh. the other car, and then a, another car kind of did something similar and just barely tapped us. And everybody stopped, got out, and said, all right. This is nothing to actually stop about. Let's go. Let's and, go. and we just uh -huh. went. <laughs> but that's kind of been a metaphor for how I approach my life. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. The car's not always crashing, but it's going to crash more than you plan on. <laughs> yeah. And it's helpful to just try and figure out how am I going to crash the car. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Minimal damage. So a lot of the characters in Day, Dan and Isabel, like I think they're aware they're drifting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that... Whatever was the sort of animating spirit of their marriage was dissipating. And they had kind of expected <laughs> that this was a likely outcome, it seems to me. Yeah. But it's another thing to feel it. Right. Like, okay, this may not be the... There's no guarantee this will work, but let's... let's give it a shot. Let's give yeah. it a shot. Of course, the novel takes place before, during, and quote-unquote after 
the pandemic. After the most severe part of the lockdown. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't think that we're in the after quite yet. We, no, we, I found we, out we, about that earlier this year. Did you? Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Well, and we, we just wouldn't be sitting here talking to each other. No, like we this. would um, I think we were very much, on one hand, very much ourselves during that time when we weren't sure if we were going to get it from the mail, when we wondered if maybe we'd watched that banana quite thoroughly enough. And I think it brought some relationships to a point that they might not have reached otherwise. I have a feeling that Dan and Isabel would have struggled along because it, they could have tried the water yeah, a lot longer. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, believe me. And, and the book is full of sex and car chases. It's not. It's it's not all equivocation. But but um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 one of those sort of good enough marriages or not bad enough marriages, and it takes the pandemic and its effects to let's say move it in a more dramatic direction. For me, there's the sort of poetic image of Isabel in the stairwell <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. getting some private time with the cell phone and yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking that's the most healthy thing in the world. And that's also, okay, the expiration date on this marriage is <laughs> yeah, yeah. probably winding down. Right, um, right, right, right. Whereas if Dan could have not checked in on her and just <laughs> give her an hour, I don't care. Just come back when you're ready to come back. But exactly. of course, yeah. raising kids, it's like, okay, that's not, especially, I do think part of a child's job is to try and destroy the parent just through the process oh, of yeah. Oh, yeah. growing and up. I think the word job is exactly right. You need to destroy your parents for your own sake, and then you hope your parents will, will survive you having destroyed them as you grow up. I guess the psychological terms would be like children have to test boundaries and they're building their own identities. And and if they're not careful, they will just be like an extra appendage of their their parents, which hypothetically parents don't want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that often involves, oh, let's just say some very painful interludes. Well, and with parents who don't want to be hyper-normative, about who they want their children to yeah. be while children are pushing boundaries. Yeah, yeah. That can lead to really painful. And you have to wonder, okay, is is this mental illness or is this or is this the normal childhood thing just given more room to expand? Yeah. I think parenthood is maybe the best possible example of the ways in which let's well, just consider well-intended parents with the full knowledge that some parents are not. But in a certain sense, you can't do it right. You can do it better or worse. But I grew up with my own parents, as one does, and then a lot of my friends are parents. And you're right, the style is very different. They're not, my friends with kids are less authoritarian. They are more questioning of their own actions vis-a-vis the children. And it seems to be great sometimes <laughs> and kind of impossibly difficult sometimes. You're bringing another human being not just into the world, but into their own humanness. Another mind. Yeah. And, oh, darling, if you think that's going to go smoothly, good luck to you. <laughs> and if it does go smoothly, 
look out for when it starts to not because yeah. those yeah, 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 are often yeah. the wildest. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I guess if anything, I am amazed, kind of thrilled that we keep doing it all. We keep becoming parents. We keep writing novels. We keep petitioning. We are, and I think this is one of the most remarkable things about us, an incredibly determined species that is kind of undaunted by the odds against us. Love that about us. Well, I think it requires patience and imagination to be able to believe, okay, in the future things will be better. Yeah, patience or, or, and imagination. Or whatever's yeah, yeah, yeah. capsized will, yeah, will yeah. rectify. Yeah. I do find that I haven't done a really good job of describing all of the different plot elements of this mm, book. Not necessary. So there are seven important characters, yeah. I would say, who would say are relatively four, developed. Five, six, seven. Yeah, seven. It's a little unpredictable when we're going to go into one person's mind or one person's experience. Violet, the youngest child, I'm fascinated. She's a difficult child. So, of course, she's my hero of the book. And I think you do a wonderful job of, of portraying her, I don't want to say cruelty, her heartlessness regarding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. her parents' plight, mm-hmm. while at the same time taking her own concerns earnestly. And she's both intelligent and childish because she's a child. To me, I don't know if this is what I need to imagine I'm a child again is, Mm, okay, mm, I need mm. like the smart version of what a child is when I may not have been an especially smart child when I was younger. I've got a lot of college degrees. I worked awfully hard on them. (laughs) Yeah. I think the, the complexity of these characters, but their hunger for for life and their confusions are breathtaking. I do think it's a wonderful kind of magic that you perform in making this compelling reading. You know, I imagine a sprawling 500-page version of this in which it's like, okay, we're going to get lost. And uh, and instead, in its way, it's very controlled. It's very, or in terms of the presentation, it's very disciplined. That's what I want to say. I will tell you that This is fairly usual for me, but maybe more so with this book than any other. I I, um, I sort of ruthlessly cut it down. I feel like like any writer should be asking of a book, how could this be shorter? And the answer might be 800 pages is as short as it can be, (laughs) uh, depending on the book. David Foster Wallace wringing his hands over (laughs) Infinite Jest. I I don't always know why I feel like these things, but it's sort of intuitive, um, that this should be compact, that this, this should be as short as it can be and still resonate and make emotional and other kinds of sense. Well, it's an intense experience reading your work. Oh, I hope and so. that's a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, if it were, if it were more sprawling, I could see how like, and again, that's my concern for my students. It's like, okay, okay. Like, it's kind of like, okay, just Go be Michelangelo. It's like, okay, you don't start <laughs> there. It's like, okay. Because Michelangelo had skill, and then he also had such vision that he was able to accomplish things that, uh, okay, like on yeah, paper, it's like, yeah, yeah. as a teacher, you don't go, yeah, go try that. Like, right, 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 right. But one of the things I do do with my students is encourage them to be as brief as possible. I think it is, writing isn't easy, even if you're a, a kid, a college student or high school student, it's too easy to just sort of go 
on and on and on. And I imagine, I don't mean to backtrack too much, but because of how intensely you are in the minds of these characters, that I could just imagine the book starts long before the book starts. Oh, the book starts long before the book starts. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and the book continues long after the book ends. So for it to have the forward tilt of suspense, and it, like I, I imagine it's like, okay, here's the last possible moment the reader can jump in and right, follow right, right, right. what's going on. That is very well observed. And I, you know, I'm very much aware of the fact that any, any story sort of takes place on a continuum with those first ambitious fish who grew feet on one end and the supernova of the sun <laughs> on the other end. And you're picking out right. some tiny section along that line. And yeah, yeah. You bring readers in, and then at a certain point, you say, this is the end of the story that I'm telling you. There's centuries still to go. <laughs> for the characters who survive, there's, there's more life for the characters. But we're leaving them here with a certain sense of closure, but also a certain sense that this is just the end of this part of the story. It's never the end of the whole story. Well, that is the show for this week. I would like to thank Maggie Smith, Michael Cunningham, Lisa Powley, and of course, Miami Book Fair for helping me arrange these most excellent interviews. Don't forget to check out the truckandodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including perfect advice from Dr. Perfect, heartbreaking comic book reviews by Drew Barth, and reviews of cinematic masterpieces by your own curator of schlock, Jeff Schuster. Also, if you haven't been to the Drunken Odyssey's YouTube channel, maybe give it a look. On New Year's Day, I released a longish review of a recent coloring book made in honor of Frank Herbert's Dune. And we talk about Dune the book, Dune the audiobook, and the so far two extant Dune films, and also the unmade. Jodorowsky Dune film and we color and tell jokes and stuff alright until next week put your ass in the chair keep attacking those keys and don't swallow the worm dear listeners writers and fellow Odysseans Send your questions, observations, complaints, manifestos, transcriptions of Turkish opera, and whatever else you got to thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer. Lauren Butler.